everyone. This is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Sophia. And I'm Brian. We're pleased to sit down with Deborah Tolchinsky, Associate Chair and Associate Professor of Radio, TV, Film, who's a documentary filmmaker and curator and the founding director of the MFA in Documentary Media Program at Northwestern. She received an AB from the University of Southern California School of Cinematic Arts and a BFA and MFA from the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. In her filmmaking career, she has shown her work at the Sundance Film Festival, the John F. Kennedy Center, the Gene Siskel Film Center, and the Supreme Court Institute. As a documentarian, she directed and produced the feature Fast Talk about competitive college debate. Her most recent project, True Memories and Other Falsehoods, concerns contaminated memory and the false internalized belief in, in relation to criminal justice. TMOF is currently in development with Carticuum Films. Deborah joined the Northwestern faculty in 2006 and won a Clarence Simon Award for Teaching Excellence in 2010. Deborah, thank you for being here with us today. Thanks for having me. Um, so we just want to start sort of at the beginning of your career in film. So can you just talk about what sparked your interest in filmmaking and what led you to pursue an education in that? Sure. Um, I came from a family where I was expected to go to law school or do something that was financially respectable, and I was always a little bit off in that way. I was, I was an artist, but I didn't feel like I had the liberty to go do art, so I had a circuitous route. I traveled around uh, a bit in between um, college, and eventually I thought, well, Filmmaking is a great way to kind of be in something that's more financially stable. Let's not say completely financially stable, uh, but also use art. And so I went to USC Film School and I got out. Well, while I was there, I fell in love with documentary. I made a doc. Uh, I co-directed a doc with my spouse that went to Sundance. It, it had quite a bit of press and um, the process just... I was in love, but it was very difficult to make a living doing documentary. It still is. And so I thought, oh, I'll go try and get a job in Hollywood in post-production. I thought editing because I really liked that. And then I'll make docs on the side. So I started working in Hollywood and I was getting jobs on big budget feature films in post. In post making a good living. I was in the union, and I thought, if I keep doing this, I'm going to hate film. It just was not why I wanted to make film, and there was nothing left over to make docs because I was working 80 hours a week, which is fine when you're maybe 22 or 25, but when you start trying to figure out the rest of your life, you know, it just wasn't, it wasn't viable. So I ended up going back to art school, I studied painting, uh, fine art, and I kind of found my way back to documentary. Wow. Sounds like a really long journey to kind of get back to where you are now. Um, well, it changes it, mm -hmm. and it informs it. I don't think I would have made film in the same way. I feel like studying fine art really changed the way I make work. And in what sense specifically did that happen? I think having knowledge about the history of art making, but also thinking about things like, uh, I mean, you could just talk about color palette and how that's inflected. You could talk about uh, layering 
you could talk about juxtaposition, which is, of course, something that you think about all the time in editing, but then you bring that in, you guys probably are getting a taste of that with sound, uh, and it becomes really complicated. But, you know, the more things that you know about, I often find that translating them into another field becomes really uh, great. I mean, you when you translate something from one field to another, it can take on a whole other level of meaning. Are you still painting now? No, I don't like cleaning up paint. <laughs> I totally understand that. People um, keep asking me that lately. I've had people come over to my house who are like, oh, why aren't you painting? Like I can, I'm teaching and, you know, doing admin and trying to make a film, which is like, you know, many hats. Yeah, it's hard. And fundraising for it. Yeah. So you've clearly worked on a number of different documentary projects, and we wanted to know which one was maybe your favorite or the most gratifying experience and which one was the most frustrating or presented the most challenges. I haven't worked on that many. Uh, the project I'm working on right now is, of course, the one that's the most satisfying, and you know, the ones that are the that you have the most difficult that I have the most difficulty with are the ones that I've finished, because then you look back and you only notice what bugs you about it, and every time you view it, it bugs you more and more and more. Yeah. It can be hard to be a video content creator or a filmmaker and like yeah. have to be forced to look at your work again. At first you're like, oh, it's okay. It's, yeah. it's, I, it's, it's fine. But so I think it's always difficult to look at past work. So you brought up your more recent project, True Memories and Other Falsehoods, which was published by the New York Times. So um, the New York Times published a piece called Contaminated Memories. And I'll be showing that tonight, which is carved out of material that will be folded into the feature film, True Memories and Other Falsehoods. Okay. So uh, so that's one piece of the larger film. It's material that will be folded in, but I have a lot more on that. It's just a 13-minute short. And I wanted to do that because it takes a long time to make a documentary, especially if you're holding down another job and fundraising. And um, it was a way to get something out and to help position the feature as I continue to work on it. And on a venue like the New York Times, of course, you have you have smart, large viewership. Does the full-length version take on a different angle than the New York Times version? So True Memories and Other Falsehoods, uh, well, let me back up. Contaminated Memories concerns the case of Penny Bernstein, who wrongly uh, identified her assailant, and he spent 18 years in prison before DNA came out, was tested. And DNA, to back up, could not be tested at the time because it didn't exist. They, there wasn't the ability, but they had saved some hairs, and they had three hairs. You needed to have the root, and only one hair had the root, and that hair was tested. It was 18 years later, and it turned out she had identified the wrong person. But 
True memories and other falsehoods is a full feature, and it's looking at three cases. So a case of an eyewitness who wrongly identifies her assailant, which is Penny. It's looking from a police perspective at how a false confession can be elicited uh, unwittingly based on the type of training that police currently get. So it's uh, a guy named James Trainum, who used to be a homicide detective, takes us through a case of uh, wrongful con conviction and how that came to be. And then the third piece I just started from, I'm super, well, excited might be the wrong word. Uh, it's very powerful. I started from it a couple weeks ago with a guy named Gary Gogger who came to believe he actually committed a murder that he didn't commit based on the way he was interrogated. So, and it was the murder of both his parents and he was on death row and he was supposed to die with lethal injection uh, and definitive evidence came out that he didn't do it. So, and they have the, they actually caught the people that did kill both his parents. So it's kind of looking at how memory and or false internalized belief, you can actually come to believe that you did something that you didn't do. And then the feature is also, um, I've been filming with police in Arizona who are developing new protocols that I think will drastically reduce the amount of wrongful convictions. It's great to hear. Um, I know that seems like the through, through link between all three portions of this upcoming feature that you have are memory. Um, and I, the, although I know you're not a professor of memory or you're mm -hmm. not a cognitive science specialist, I was curious as to whether or not um, when you, you got it in the middle of the filmmaking process, whether you went out and did outside research on memory or how you kind of bring memory into the film. So I'm going to back up a little bit because mm -hmm. it is about memory. But there's also this distinction between memory and false internalized belief. Penny had a memory uh, that was implanted that she saw the wrong person as her assailant based on uh, photos she had seen and then a live lineup and some other th suggestions by police. There was a whole host of things. Uh, the other two people didn't have a memory, but they became convinced that they did it based on what the police told them, which they lied to them, which the police are allowed to do because they think that it can produce a disclosure and that no one would really confess to a crime they didn't commit. But we know from DNA that that is not true. So I, I know I'm kind of going off what you asked, but it's not just memory. It's also false internalized belief. You can believe something even though you don't have a memory of it. I must have had a blackout which is what mm -hmm. the police told both of those people. You blacked it out, it was too traumatic. So they believed they did it, mm -hmm. even though they had no memory. In terms of the research, I'm not a professor of cognitive science, but I have been filming with people that will be in the film. Uh, in terms of memory, I filmed with Elizabeth Loftus, who was you know, renowned in the field. And I don't know if you're familiar with her work at all. She did lost uh, this study called Lost in the Mall. Uh, okay, you're gonna ask me about Lost in the Mall. You're gonna... I'm, I'm just a I'm a psych major. Okay. And I, my my specialization is memory, so that's why I'm okay. aware about that study and all of her work. Sorry. Yeah. Don't mean to cut you off. No, no, no. I'm going on and on. So please <laughs> cut me off. 
anyway, so yeah, I am looking at uh, the way actually memory works, and I'm talking to people that uh, I have two experts in the film. I don't want it to be expert-based because I, I feel you identify most from people's personal stories, not people talking at you, but some of it needs contextualization. Mm -hmm. So Elizabeth Loftus, I interviewed uh, last year, and a man named Richard Leo, who is uh, a professor in San Francisco and, it, and an expert in wrongful conviction, false confession, Miranda, uh, and he's baked. So both of them kind of give some context to, to how this happens. Yeah. I wanted to ask about, um, you mentioned working with the police to sort of reform some of the ways they interrogate suspects to not plant false memories. Um, what does that look like? And how did you get in contact with someone who was able to make that happen? I am not working with police to get them to do that. I found out, you know, through the research that I've been doing and then it was ongoing, about a homicide detective who's kind of a unicorn, I'll say. Very unusual. Um, and he has been training with uh, a, a HIG group, which is, do you know, HIG is high value interrogation detainee group. And it came out of. Uh, when they were, they were waterboarding people and torturing people to get information, people started saying, you can't torture people. And other people were like, we need to get good information. And Obama administration, a lot of money was put into research. And it, they put together CIA, FBI, Department of Defense, and a, a lot of research money to find out how do you get accurate information, and they found out a lot of things. So this homicide detective somehow got pulled into one of these groups looking at this, and based on the information, has been designing a new training curriculum in Tempe, Arizona, and I think the only other police department that's doing this or involved is in LA. And, you know, somehow, uh, it took about a year. I had been in contact with him. I kept talking to him. I had to go through legal contracts. Um, but I was allowed to come and film with him. And we filmed for four days uh, and did extensive interviews. So most police are trained in read or read-based kind of training, which was started funny enough at Northwestern and there's like these nine steps that you go through but it a lot of the ideas from it are that no one would confess to a crime they didn't commit but it was before DNA and now we know that people do so unfortunately the people who are most um, at risk are people who trust the police and they wave the Mirandas, they think I have nothing to hide, I'm innocent, you know, I, I wanna help solve, I'll do anything to help. Or there's someone who's, you know, young or maybe lower IQ, but often, you know, like in the case of Gary, really smart guy, he was 
very upset. <laughs> I mean, he was traumatized. Both his parents had just been killed. He wanted to know what happened. And he wanted, he felt he had nothing to hide. He was going to work with police to help them solve the crime. And then when they told him they had bloody clothes, a murder weapon, they had definitive evidence that he did it, he couldn't put those pieces together. So then he's like, well, how could I have done it? I don't have a memory. Could I have done it in a blackout? Mm -hmm. That happens all right. the time. So that opens the door yeah. to a lot of yeah. If, if you did it in a blackout, you could have done anything, right? right. And then you, so, but unfortunately, the people that are most, um, I'm trying to find the right word, liable to fall victim to these things are are people who don't have an attorney and and are trusting. Mm -hmm. Right. So one of the stories that your film covers is the story of Penny, who mm. had a memory but convicted the wrong person in identifying her assailant. Um, that's a story that was also covered in the Netflix show Making a Murderer. I wanted to ask you about your opinion on your piece, sort of providing a counter-narrative to that story and the role of documentary film and especially slow burn true crime dramas in possibly sensationalizing a lot of the violence and trauma that people have gone through? Yeah, all really important questions. I heard Penny speak at the Center on Wrongful Convictions in 2015 before Making a Murderer came out and approached her. I knew nothing about Making a Murderer. She knew nothing about it. We began filming and then Making a murder dropped, and it was like, you know, everyone was talking about it, weighing in, talking about who should play who in the in the drama version. It was absolutely traumatizing for people who had been involved in that case, like Penny. And I kind of just stopped for a while. And it's one of the reasons why originally I was, I was only going to be making a film on Penny. And when that happened, I decided to pull out and include two other stories. Well, there's other reasons that I'm doing that, but we can, we can get to that. Um, I think there's a real problem with, with, people finding entertainment in other people's tragedies. I think there's a natural tendency for us to watch these things. Maybe it's a safe way to try and understand them. But it it's an issue, especially when it becomes sensationalized and people are weighing in that really don't have the knowledge. I can't say that I'm absolved from that by making by just by making this when you when you go out and you talk to people it's traumatizing for them often when you're bringing up these horrible things however i think by looking at things that have gone wrong and trying to understand them it can be used to make things better and what do you do with horrible things that happen you can either kind of bury it and that's okay sometimes we need to do that but if there's a way to use these moments and these things that have gone wrong to keep it from happening to someone else, then I think it has 
important impact and is worth doing, but it's a fine line. In your filmmaking process with that, are there certain boundaries that you uphold when conducting those interviews and prying into these really personal stories that you think might protect those people who have been victim to these crimes? I try to just be very transparent about what I'm doing, what I'm looking for, and uh, respect people. If, if something they don't want to touch, that's, you know, you respect that. And what the purpose is. I was just going to build on that and ask you, taking a step back and thinking about positionality of a, as, of a director in documentary filmmaking, the ethics behind it, and thinking about what your role should be, not necessarily your role, your as in general, right? Your role as a director should be in the process, why ideally it does become, and how. Is it okay for you to be personally linked to the story? You Like, can a, a great documentary film come out of a very personal connection between filmmaker and uh, I, I don't think there's like a hard rule. I think mm -hmm. all types of work gets made yeah. and I'm no one to say who should make what. Uh, I think you can make personal work and I think all work in some way is personal because otherwise why are you interested mm -hmm. in making it? There has to be some kind of connection to you and that work or you and that person. Um, what was the rest of your question? And the rest of it was essentially kind of touching on how much of your own voice as a director should emerge or can emerge in the film itself. I think it has to. I think your voice has to emerge. Otherwise, it's just formula. Mm -hmm. I mean, what I didn't really talk about with, and I don't know how much time we have. I guess we have a little bit of yeah, time. We do. But one of the reasons I was particularly interested, there's a couple things, and I'm sure you have some harder questions for me too. Uh, I, I know you're saving them for last, but you don't need to. Uh, one of the things that interested me and made me decide, I had heard Penny speak, and after I heard her speak, I couldn't shake her story. I just kept, it started, I started dreaming about it. And I, you know, making a doc, with you know low budget it's a, it's a long process i started this film in 2016 so i have to really think about is this something i want to invest that much time in and that i'm going to be able to embed in i'm not going to you know start to feel trapped uh, i'm going to learn from it it's going to change me and then i was thinking about documentary itself and how it is a contaminant to memory and belief. And that's when I realized that I was gonna make this project because there's a meta level of it. Yes, our, all of our memories and beliefs are contaminated, but documentary also acts as a contaminant. So I felt like I could use the form of the film itself to replicate that, to mirror it, so that through the process of watching, viewers had a visceral experience of that. So I am also very knowingly contaminating things. And we all, all filmmakers are, but I'm doing things a little bit more underlined sometimes. Did you feel, to use your word, contaminated yourself while working on this? Well, I'm still working on it. Um, 
it's been a really interesting process. It's changed the way I think about criminal justice, about memory, about belief. It's made me less arrogant in some ways about thinking I understand or I know something. And that's why I love Doc so much. When I went to film school at USC's uh, professor, you know, they used to teach you, oh, the main character has like 180 degree change by the end. It was like one of those formulas, right? But with a good doc, the person making it has that change by the end, and the viewers have that change for the end. There's nothing more powerful to me than seeing a documentary film and walking out and thinking completely differently about a subject that you thought you understood. That's powerful. That's impactful. That has the ability to make positive change in the world or negative change. Mm -hmm. So it's a it's an amazing medium to work in, and I feel very privileged because I get to go talk to people and learn things, and it, it's not I'm not punching a clock, that's for sure. <laughs> I'm really curious about this project, sort of um, like deconstructing your own arrogance, as you said, and making you feel that things aren't so easy to understand. Did you find yourself questioning? the stories as you were covering them and sort of jumping around through different lenses of how you saw things? How did your, like, what I'm trying to say is, what was it about that project that made you go through that transformation? I think it's just talking to people and listening and the process of making a doc puts you in a position to do that and to do like in-depth research and that could be about anything that you're working on, but it changes you when you start to really talk to people. I had a funny experience with this film and that like, I couldn't shake it from my dreams. I, I started thinking about it and thinking about the making of it and the idea of contamination, you know, whether it's just through sound where you're hearing exterior sounds in an interior scene or whether the eye color of someone is slightly changed and that was the only thing that Penny got off. She said that her assailant had brown eyes and in fact uh, her assailant had blue eyes as did Stephen Avery. So there's a portion of the film where the eyes actually are brown and then they're blue. Now most people don't notice but we're exposed to this type of thing all the time. I guess I was gonna say that uh, I was giving a talk about a year after I started filming and Me Too had started to, everyone, it was online, it was starting to go viral in a big way. And I realized, oh, I was assaulted on a beach or almost assaulted on a beach. Um, and I'd never made that connection to, to why this project but you know so you're on I, I hadn't repressed it it wasn't a repressed memory it just I hadn't connected the dots mm -hmm. I think there's something really powerful about when people come forward with their stories it liberates you to see your own memories in a different light and start to see things for maybe what they really were well, we don't know because memory is something that evolves. <laughs> it's, it's not a static, and maybe we haven't evolved for it to be static. That's not 
we haven't needed that in terms of the way we evolution works. Memory is not static. Elizabeth Loftus has said it's born anew every day, and that mm -hmm. might have come from somebody else saying it, yeah. but uh, it's suggestible, and especially if you have some information that's correct, you can embed other things. And you know, in, in these studies like Lost in the Mall, uh, her study was, she took a group of, of students, she gave them booklets about their childhood that had four incidents in them. Three of them were true, one was fabricated. The fabricated one included some information that would be accurate, like the mall near their house, you know, some people's names. But the false fabricated incident was that they were lost as a child in the mall and that they, uh, elderly, they were crying, an elderly lady helped them, and then they were reunited. And 29% of people, once they read this along with the stories that were true, believed that they were true, had a memory, could, could recall details of this incident and that study did not have a lot of people in it but the, it has been replicated and there's been other studies based on that and the numbers are between 30 and 60 although Julia Shaw some of her numbers have come under scrutiny uh, you know can can have memories implanted all our memories are implanted you know you see I mean Susan Sontag talked about it with pictures is it a memory or did you see a picture of yourself on that couch as a child. You saw a picture and now you see it in your memory and memory and imagination overlap in the brain. Those areas in the brain overlap. And there's a theory about, uh, there's a theory about memory that's just memory and verbatim memory. Just memory is this idea that you kind of have the feel and some of the information, like the feel of an incident. Verbatim is exactly what it sounds like. It's the exact details. But our gist memory lasts longer and is clearer. So often we use gist to fill in verbatim. Yeah, every time we recall memory, it's reconstructed. Every time you access a memory, it's reshaped by your context, by the people around you, by any new information you take in which is it makes it crazy right it makes this like thing that you're supposed to depend on to like build your self or build your your conception of life in like fallible and it, that can break down where you come from um but it's interesting because most people don't even though you know that we mm -hmm. don't think like that yeah. uh, you know you get in a fight with your boyfriend or girlfriend and and you're sure you're right you remember exactly <laughs> what you said mm -hmm. you know and it may be that no one's lying, you just have different recall yeah. of it. And maybe there's a reason that it's not supposed to be high fidelity. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to things like criminal investigation, the stakes are pretty high. Yeah. So in some matters, maybe they're not as high. I think the application is much broader than criminal justice. Mm -hmm. But when you're talking about putting someone on death row, you know, then you, then you better be relying on data and hard facts. Yeah, yeah. Not just eyewitness testimony. Yeah. And it doesn't mean eyewitness testimony is is wrong. Yeah. It, it can be accurate. And I bet you're going to ask me a question about that. 
No, uh, you should. That's the, I was, I was going to say. Um, that's the question you have to ask. I was going to ask you something really quick about, like, what do you think? Is there a danger in, like, broaching this topic and broaching this territory and, like, discrediting Me Too stories? Abs- and and making them be like, oh, you're just recalling this incorrectly. Absolutely. And yeah. in fact, tonight I'm talking about that a little bit. It's And it was one of my worries. I brought it up with Penny about telling her story is that it could be used by the wrong person to discredit people who come, victims, uh, survivors, witnesses who come forward after a crime to say, oh, see, it's not reliable. It doesn't mean it's not reliable. Mm-hmm. It means it needs to be corroborated and we need to be careful in how we collect it and that we don't contaminate it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that an eyewitness can't be, can't be correct. And it's really important for eyewitnesses to continue to come forward because they help ensure that justice is done and solve crimes and, and in the case of the sexual assault, hopefully catch the correct perpetrator and prevent other assaults from happening mm-hmm. but it's but it's essential that we you know don't just convict whoever mm-hmm. we need to have due process mm-hmm. we don't want the wrong person in prison that doesn't help anyone and in fact then the perpetrator is still out there yeah we have to wrap up Um, But thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. It's been really wonderful. It's an honor. Thanks for having me. And remember, listeners, to stay hungry.